Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I am your host and coach, Tyler Johnson. Thank you for tuning in. And whether you've tuned in to elevate your mindset, your game, or just your day, you're in the right place. My guest this episode is a two-time national champion baseball player at Louisiana State University. He's now a clinical and sports psychologist and the founder of his business, The Mindside. He has more than a decade of experience working with PGA, LPGA, and Corn Ferry Tour players. Last year, his golf clients amassed over $25 million in winnings alone. He's also the sports and performance psychologist for the University of Alabama's athletic department, working with the 2015, 2017, and 2020 national championship football teams. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, Dr. Brett McCabe. Thanks for having me. Good. Excited to have you. Um, got a, a great career in the field of the things we talk about on this podcast. And, you know, also, I think a great perspective as a former student athlete and two-time national champion, right? Yep. yep. Um, what led you from, you know, being a, an athlete to the work that you do now and kind of what led you on you that know, journey? It's a good question. When I, when I was playing, I struggled. Um, I always struggled with confidence, right? I, I was... I was confident, but I, I always did the little things right. I always did like the 85% right, but the extra 15% of that dog in the fight, I just didn't have. Um, I think it was because I was a late bloomer, like really late and and didn't mature too late. And like a male, I didn't have that testosterone boost of like the run you over type of thing. We didn't like football because I was never the mean guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I had to learn how to push that. And it didn't, it didn't come to the point until I kind of, lost I'd lost my ability per se like the talent that I had I'd lost due to an injury that I had to find it and it became the only angle I had to be able to compete and when I did that it turned me onto the side of psychology I was not a psych guy I was in fact I'm, I'm still not I don't even consider myself a psychology guy um but it it just opened me up to what was possible and I, you know I'd been in environments where I'd been around that before but I'd never really understood it and it just took me on a journey. And next thing I know is I'm sitting here. And so um, I think it was really my stuff and uh, go from there. Gotcha. I know uh, in, in between you spent some time after college uh, in the medical field, correct? Yep. But- um, you know, so when I finished training, um, the uh, I went into the pharmaceutical industry and worked in research and development and education out on the field. And I loved it because it was about strategic development and processes. And we went to uh, pharma allowed me to kind of create being in field based and work on the things that I did um, and work on education. And there was a lot of psychological implementation of what we did. It was it was educating providers and researchers based on our set data and our research. And now let's be honest right now, the pharmaceutical industry is not the highest integrity field there is, given what's happened in the last couple of years. But there's a whole lot of really, really good stuff that does that does go on in the pharmaceutical industry. And I was fortunate enough to work with a division that did that. And so I was able to go out and work with pride, but to help people educate it and stuff like that. So um and and you know, when you're looking at coaching people and helping them succeed or looking at how to take a product and get understanding and identify barriers, it's not much different, right? You're you're trying to 
you're trying to create plans to help people work through whatever they're going through. That's what I was, like that. was going to see. Ask was really the uh, what things do you take from that that you see, you know, with your working with athletes, teams, and executives. Yeah, some of it's programming, meaning the programming idea of like you know, it's very easy as coaches and whatever we do in coaching to always react and try to fix a problem. Right, we're gonna fix this. We're gonna fix that. We're gonna fix this. We're gonna do that, and what happens is you end up walking around just trying to put out little fires, but you never get to the core of the issue. Mm. Now, a lot of people in my field and, you know, in traditional psychology, they want to go to the core of the issue immediately. And people don't open up to that. Right. Like, Oh, you got underlying whatever. It's like, dude. And I learned that lesson firsthand. I had a patient who came in when I was in training and, and she came in for depression. And when I did the analysis or the assessment, it was clear she had obsessive compulsive disorder with long-standing limitations. And, and I was so excited. I was like, this is it, man. I'm go out there. I'm going to fix this. This is so cool. And she never came back. Um, and my advisor met with me later and he goes, why, did, why don't you think she ever came back? And I said, well, this, he, he, she, he said, you know, she came in for an oil change and you wanted to sell her a brand new car. It's not what she came in for. And so I think learning those different things of, when a player is working and teams working, they're going to give you this. They're going to they're going to give you that test trial. Well, that was the same in pharma. Somebody, I'd go meet with a, a provider, a researcher, developer, state, you know, whatever, and they would go. You had to find out what they wanted, and then I kind of understand where was their resistance. Sure. And I kind of always conceptualize business people, and I still do it today, into four different types of people. Um, and it's based upon knowledge base and acceptance. Okay, so alignment and and knowledge. Um, We've all coached somebody who has a really deep understanding of um, what they're doing, okay? And you can, but they're they're in line with you, and you can jam on them. You can find, you can come back and say, "Hey, man, listen to this great video," and you're not gonna freak them out. You have other people you give the video to, and they never watch it, but they'll tell you how great it is and how. And and so what I did is I realized is that if you take like the alignment, like alignment high and low, and you take knowledge high and low. The people who are high alignment, high knowledge is what I call an aligned person. And you build that person and they're, they're jamming with you. They're like, man, I need more information on this. Hey, I'm in this situation. I'm doing this. They're with you. Those are easy. They're great. Don't take them for granted. Keep pumping right, them, right. you know, keep, yeah. keep working on them. The bottom side are what I call dismissives, which are people who are very low knowledge and they, they keep you at bay. They, they don't like you. They're not, ex they're not easy to deal with. And so what they do is because they don't want you to know that they don't know what they're really talking about is they attack you and they come out. We all know that that hyper a-hole who just beats you down, resists you for everything, creates drama. You're screwing me over all this other stuff. And what happens is we get on the, we get on the, on our heels and be like, oh, dude, I'm trying. I'm like stuff like that. Um, but the reality is that what happens is um, they're doing that because they don't want you in. They don't want you in their kitchen. Okay. Now those people, you may not be able to change. You may have to find a way to develop a link there. And so sometimes coaches, I'll tell players, I'll tell player coaches to work with players. Like if you are button heads, find something that you guys can communicate about that maybe has nothing to do with the sport. You know, like, Hey, man, I don't know if you saw that most recent episode of mayor of Kingstown. God almighty, man, that's <laughs> yeah. badass. And all of a sudden they start realizing that they're not trying to hurt me. They're not trying to like, but what happens is coach, you're like, that guy's not responding. Boom. I'm going harder. And all they're doing is they're yeah. getting more and more of a problem. The other two are the interesting ones. The person who has a lot of knowledge, but it's not very aligned to us. It's what we call a, um, uh, 
an antagonist. And we see them as, as squeaky wheels, but the reality of the fact is they just have a different philosophy and they know what they're doing. They're knowledgeable. And so as a coach, what you have to do is understand how to communicate with them. It's like, hey, look, I know you and I have some different ideas on this. How do you think this should go? Now, what you're doing is you're not saying I'm just giving in to them, but like, hey, I know I know you came, you transferred from another school. You guys ran a more up, up, uh, up-tempo offense. And right now we're really focusing on defense. How did you guys, you know, how would you see the way to communicate that? And what you're doing is you're giving them a little bit of rope, but you're wheeling them in by building trust. They just may have a completely different theory. And that happens a lot in the middle game. Like people who are heavy meditative based people, I'm not going to get them to be intentional focused and in energy, right? They're just different. And that's cool. The one, the other one's the danger. And it's what I call an, um, an accommodator. They're very low knowledge, but very high agreement. And they make us feel like rock stars. Man, that's awesome. That person is like, that's my guy. That's my girl. <laughs> Got it. Ain't doing anything. Like I've got players who will be like, yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, no. I've been journaling. I'm like, let's look at. It. Well, I didn't bring it. I'm like, you're not doing. Get which is fine. That's my job. Is I got to figure out why they don't want to do it. But don't sit there and tell me how great it is and how much you're learning from your journaling when I know you're not doing it. Yeah. Right. And so, as a coach, we have to understand what do we have to do for that accommodator? Why are they being so agreeable with us? They're keeping us once again like the dismissals away, and they're they're pleasing us to make us feel good so we don't get in there. And that was one of the things I learned in pharma is that we dealt with those people all the time. And, you know, you'd walk out of a meeting and be like, that was awesome. And it started hitting me when I started supervising people. I was like, you didn't get anything done. They just kept you two steps away from them the entire time. And nobody would ever bring them in, bring their boss in to meet the antagonist because they weren't on board. Sure. And if coaches can break down the players in that way, it's like, okay, I've, I've got aligned people. I've got antagonists. I got accommodators. I'll say everything right. And then we got some dismissives. It's okay. But you can coach over one of them. Yeah. And one of our guests, that, that last group, you know, they're usually uh, identified as high character, right? Yeah. I like them, you know? And so, but it's, is it the right kind of character for your team? And I 100%. think that was how kind of brought that made me kind of think of that. My coach used to say, and this sounds terrible. So I'll say this, but. My coach says, you know, coaches can't be afraid to take a risk on a kid. There are troubled kids. There are kids that make mistakes. Okay. There are certain no-goes, right? Um, but, and every coach has to have those lines. I mean, obviously violence against women and, and things like that. Sure. I mean, those are no-goes. Um, but he's like, if I got a player who I have to get out of a fight, kind of fight at a bar. Right? When I was in playing the drinking age team in Louisiana, so you could go and coach educated us. He didn't keep us away from it. This is a guy that I've had to go bail out. Right. I didn't, I didn't take away the consequences. I, you know, we never did that. Right. But if he knew I never, I didn't crap on him. I didn't send him down the river and I didn't shut him out. And I didn't, then he knew I had him and I was there for him. And then when I needed him, he was there for me. Right. I think coaches sometimes see those tough players. as not buying in and they reject him. And they're like, well, I've tried. I've done all this. Well, have you met them where they are? Why is a player resisting you? Why is a player? I mean, sometimes players, they're running from their demons. They're running from their fears. And you are a a person of authority that's telling them they have to do this and they have to accommodate this. Maybe they don't want to. Maybe they're afraid they can do it. And nobody's ever really believed in it. But I tell them I believe in them. Yeah, it's different. And so to your point, like those accommodators, high character, great kids, but they just melt. They're, They're marshmallows under pressure. You know, because they don't have that 
yeah. fire underneath them. Yeah. Um, your book, uh, Break Free from Suckville. My wife was curious when she saw that book on my desk. <laughs> like, what's that about? Um, and then um, I quickly... Oh, I quickly in about five minutes, uh, you know, showed her the first page. I, I played college football at Northern Iowa. I lived in the same house that Kurt Warner did uh, yep. <laughs> at the end. So I sucked me in right from the first story there. Um, it, and always, you know, being a UNI guy, you've heard the Kurt Warner legend a lot, but uh, I, I loved your take on it. Um, the things you kind of talk about in there, I think one of the things that stuck out in the process with your athletes is um, journaling. And mm -hmm. how, how can journaling help us uh, as athletes, as coaches, as people, just to navigate uh, our lives? Well, we got to have it. Um, we got to have a way of understanding and, and taking all the stuff that's going on in our noggin, right? We got so many things bombarding our head. We got to have a way to download it, right? You know, you said I got to my computer this morning and I hear it in the background, you know, it's running, it's downloading. Where do we do? We stuff it. We never learn, which is whatever. Um, but in reality, journaling allows us to look at the trends. Mm. You know, if if you're in medicine and you're in surgery, a surgeon or whatever, they do MNMs, you know, mortality and morbidity conferences. If, you know, if you're in the military, after you do an action, they do an after action report. In coaches, we do reviews, but what a lot of times coaches do is they just put the stats in somebody's locker or they give them the immediate feedback. I mean, if I just came in from driving from traffic and somebody goes, what were you doing at nine o'clock this morning? It's like, what in the hell are you talking about? Right. But if 24 hours later, we sit down and say, look, in this moment, you know, this is some things that do, this was the contribute. Well, that's what journaling allows us to do. It's like allows me to download and say, hey, look, I wasn't that much of a jerk out there today. I, I wasn't as off as I thought I was. In the moment, I thought I was brutal. I, I, just, I think journaling allows us to have a download moment. Yeah, definitely. I think there's a, I've heard you know, athletes talk about see and feeling when it comes to our mechanics in yeah. coaching. And I think sometimes, you know, we did it, see, we feel our thoughts and don't see them. I think well, and, and you remember one of the things that like I can look at somebody if I'm with a movement specialist or coach, or whatever, and look at somebody and go, man, they're gonna have some limitations there, right? I mean, yeah, they got a hip, whatever, whatever they do. Mentally, what do we look at? We look at body language. Body language ain't real, okay? It's a reflection of self-image, but some people will fake it to try to fake it, whatever. But nobody has a thought bubble above their head with running thoughts of fears, doubts, and insecurity. So when we see body language, we assume they got it. But when you hear a player say, God, I was so nervous there. Yeah. And you're like, what? You didn't even look it. And because I'll ask players, like, would you feel pressure? No, I don't feel it. I don't feel that. I'm like, really? Because if I put you at the top of Mount Everest, would you feel pressure and stress? Well, I mean, I don't know. If you ever go on snow skiing and go like, you know, you get up to the top of the mountain, you may not feel it your body is okay so that's what i want him to realize instead of saying it as a native it's like what did i learn in that environment what was the experience in that environment and now they have a great opportunity to grow from it and so without having a thought bubble i don't know what you're going through yeah you know i see you smiling and cutting up with family and all that i'm like man they must be happy yeah no idea that you know husband and wife can't communicate or Kids are scared to tell the parent what they really believe, or we're at a coaching. The coach looks all, like they got it all together. 
and players see that and they come in there and then they're like, you know, you, you know, the, the, the two biggest um, anxieties of kids today, mm. number one, anxiety is just running out of running rampant. Okay. Number one is, am I as good as I think I am? Most athletes have this fear of, am I actually as good as I fear that I, I want to be? And I'm going to say this is like us, you know, in our generations, it was go figure it out and come back and find a way because growth and development was the standard, but because of the faster windows success now, people think they have to have it or they don't know. Yeah. Okay. Number two is, does my coach like me? I've got all Americans that have played at Bama. Okay. Where I work and they're like, does coach like me? I'm like, and that's that big of a deal. Yeah. And I get it. And the reason for that is insecurity is so high. Insecurity over acceptance of what they do. Is like, if a coach likes me, then they're going to give me grace. Yeah. Because nobody else gives them grace in their life. Yeah. You know, social media doesn't give you grace. Nothing. With a, a, a military friend of mine once brought up how they referenced a lot uh, in his Marine group, the difference between likership and leadership. Hmm. Mm, and I, I'm curious, curious how, like, after hearing what you say there, it's like we does it matter if they like us? Maybe. I don't know. You know, it depends on the context no, of the person, actually. you know, like I'm still going to go to work. And so yeah. what, how does that fit as a coaching, like in the likership leadership kind of balance? How do you, how I do you love say? that analogy. Um, leadership is hard because as my buddy, who's CEO of a billion dollar company said, and he has to answer to his venture capital firm, right. That runs them. He's like, at the end of the day, I run a benevolent dictatorship. <laughs> okay. I, it's not a democracy. Yeah. I mean, we're actually not a democracy either in this country. No. Um, and so everyone's like, oh, we're federalists, whatever. I get that. What I mean is we hire people to make decisions on behalf of us. Right. We, they're not asking us, what do you think every single day? Okay. No. You know, we get paralyzed by choice. but We also get paralyzed by the need to have people like us. And so when you're leadership, that's why... Early in training, they make it very clear as a clinician is that when you do like psychological testing and you look at, there's an old test. I don't know if it's really used all that much anymore, but it was a test that they gave. And they said, if you gave, and you looked at the profiles of serial killers, CEOs, physicians, attorneys, and all, they looked identical because there was a, you have to have low empathy. People make decisions in leadership that impact thousands of thousands of people. Yeah. And you can't worry about Mary or John five levels down. You can worry about them, but when you make the decision, you got to make decisions for the masses. Okay. What gets people a mistake in leadership is that the narcissism runs. And then instead of being a benevolent dictatorship, there are money hungry, grabbing, thriving in power and leveraging against people. And that happens at coaches too, right? Sure. Um, coaches lose as they get bigger and their personality gets bigger. They lose their connection to players because it becomes about them. Great leaders always stand in the shadows, even great coaches. Great coaches, you know, people will say, well, what about Deion Sanders now? Well, let me say, I think Deion Sanders has a brilliant way of, I mean, you played the game. He has a brilliant way of taking the attention away from his players. Yes. But he'll highlight his players when he needs to. Yes. He's taken all the negative stuff away. He's, he's, yes. nobody's, nobody even knows who's going there right now. All they know is Prime is doing stuff. That's the goal. People are working behind the scenes. He's got the attention and the eyes, but where he's in control of them. He's like a politician. He's controlling the rhetoric. And I love it. But what happens is the likership stuff is as coaches, you've got a bunch of people who have very 
fragile egos. Okay. Now that's not this generation. I'm not as my daughter would say, Oh, you always say this about our generation. <laughs> that's anybody in a competitive environment has a fragile, fragile ego. Sure. People have to realize even the best in the world are insecure. Okay. Because if you were truly secure, you wouldn't push hard and you wouldn't grow to go to new levels. Expectations right? you can rise. Belief in self and what you're doing, which you can't. You, you can't go to, you know, whatever. And so the leadership thing is I have to make decisions that are much larger. And the biggest mistakes I've ever made in my career from a leadership standpoint in my business is I haven't listened to my gut. I've listened to people I've hired and been like, I need you to do this and, and come back to me. And they come back and they don't get it. And it's half-assed and whatever. And I'm like, but where I struggle is because I'm not real good about do this or else. And then that people get whiny and frustrated and all that. And I'm like, I just can't do it. I could probably do it easier if I was, if it wasn't my company. Like if I was like, I asked my buddy, I said, is it easier to manage somebody else's company? He's like hundred percent because it's either my neck or theirs. Like when it's your name on the wall, it's your reputation, right? Yeah. He's like, I'll just go to another company if, if I can't get, but he said, ultimately it's my failure. If I can't get the organization to follow it's the same with a coach, right? It's easier if I can get a football team to buy in. But what happens is, you know this, it's it's rarely the coach's scheme that fails them. It's their connection to their players. No doubt. When a player does not feel bought into, and that coach cannot relate to them. Everyone's afraid of a player's coach, right? Yeah. But on your coaching staff, you had coaches that were players' coaches that buffered against the head coach. No doubt. And if the head coach was a little bit more of a player's coach, he had the a-hole assistant coaches that got you back in line, right? But, yeah. Okay, that's fine. That's cool. Everybody knows their role. And so the leadership is having a vision and getting people to buy into it, but holding people accountable. Yeah. Likeability is we don't hold people accountable because we just want to be like. Yeah. Um, I worked in the White Sox front office and I'm glad you brought up Dion because I live here in Colorado. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's a, a lot of PR. Um, but he does remind me of when I was with the White Sox, Ozzy Gian was the manager. And I remember one time in an internal meeting, someone asked him like, you know, about his charisma and this. And he's like, yeah, they weren't asking Jim, tell me why he was 0 for 5, were they? <laughs> you know like and it but people didn't understand the method to his madness of kind of i think you know i'll get the eyeballs where i want them and my players need time and i think there was, there was a situation that happened at bama about i don't know eight nine years ago there was a quarterback battle going on this is before Jalen and tua maybe maybe the beginning of Jalen. there was a couple off-season issues that were really really small but blown up in the media because they were on the top of the board you know how that is and coach goes to media days and gets into a fight with a, with paul feinbaum on live air. And everyone's like, I can't believe Zion. I'm like, brilliant. 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 Because nobody talked about the other issues. The rest of the media day. <laughs> he knew. I'm like, that guy, God, I love that guy for that reason. He knows what he's doing. From average leaders to great leaders, they can control their people and the messaging, you know. Yes. And, and sometimes I think as an athlete, uh, I think there's in college athletes that you know there's some appreciation when there's similarity from the coach to the message to the team and the media but awareness that they're not always going to be as such and i think there's so that you're working in the major leagues right let's say the white stars are going through a rebuild i don't even i haven't really paid much attention but let's say they're going through a rebuild and they hire a manager like i i always looked at like buck showalter buck showalter built the yankees he built the diamondbacks he built the rangers he built the Orioles. Now he's building the Mets. But somebody always came in behind him to win the World Series. 
you notice? Or yeah. Peter? Okay. If, if the leadership of the White Sox came out and said, and the Braves did this a couple of years ago, actually, we're three years away from competing for a pennant. So you're going to see some young players play. You're going to see some guys coming in, but we're building something and we need you guys to buy into this team now as fans. And we know that that takes a lot because sometimes we're going to get kicked in because, but we're not going to chase the Dodgers way. We're not going right. to do that. Like we're not going to chase because you know what? It really doesn't help them. You know, they win pennants because they don't win anything else besides one, one world series. We're going to build and we need you guys behind us. So the manager is going to make some decisions or I'll put some players out there. You may not think are right. Like I would love it if an organization, but everyone's like, no, I wouldn't say that. We're going to act like it doesn't happen. It's like, who are we fooling? Like you're running a kid out there who's so <laughs> he doesn't have the ability yet, but he might in two years. So right. don't jeer this guy. Like we're going to get him some reps. We're going to we're going to try to win games. We're trying to win, but we're trying to win with a little bit talent deficit and experience. Yeah, no doubt. With uh, if it gave you a magic wand uh, and you could change something about student athletes or their experience and make it better. Um, what would you, uh, what would you wish for? I wish we'd give them the right to develop. I think we are in, 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 in things like NIL. I think it's great. I think it's wonderful. Market will determine its viability. Okay. Sure. Boosters are not going to pay $5 million to an unproven high school quarterback who's never taken a snap in college. Right. Eventually people are going to go out, done that didn't get anything in return. It's supply and demand. It's capitalism. I wish that we would, um, I wish we'd get rid of the 20 hour work week in college sports and go back to um, not having that rule there. I think it's done more damage than good. I played my freshman year without it and it was wonderful. Then all of a sudden coaches had all kinds of rules that they had to follow and it, they tried to extend it and you know they're going to push against it, right? You draw the yeah. line, they're going to push against the line. You don't no get the rules. They're going to manage load very well, particularly in science. I think you can get rid of that now. I think the giving them the right to improve, and I wish every player had a written down formal player development plan that they came into. Mm -hmm. I think we pretend that college sports is an amateur event. I mean, major uh, college baseball and some of the other sports finally got rid of the volunteer assistant. That's hogwash. Um, you know, I, I think we have to look at it and say the teams that have very strong professional ranks golf, baseball, basketball, football, women's basketball now is growing, women's soccer is growing. We need to see these as feeder schools, feeder programs to major league sports. Um, I, I, I would rather them have applicable degrees versus degrees of passing. Mm, so, yeah. you know, I was in school with Shaquille O'Neal. Well, come on. Now, he ended up getting his degree, but I mean, let's look at this and say, here's a business degree that gives you how to manage finances, how to do communications, how to do do that like i can see that like let's give them the like a, a degree in general studies i don't know what that really gives a person they don't even cover general life <laughs> like the, like kids are always looking like teach me life skills teach me how to run my checkbook you know 100 <laughs> percent. teach me how to you know and people go oh come on that should be taught it's not being taught where okay? yeah and then what we do is we take our student athletes to say hey you gotta go to an eight o'clock meeting with life skills and they're like oh my god i've been since five all right how do I survive this? And I'm not knocking this. I mean, I, those people work hard. I, they got brutal jobs because they're trying to find engagement when players are just like, oh, it. so let's use like what, if, if you're an art history major, awesome. 
that jams you. Bring it. Okay. But I think we got to look from these college athletes, or we got to look at our colleges and say, what are we teaching? Like, are we? We're not even teaching trades. Like, I mean, if that's the case, teach somebody to weld or get an electric, you know, electrician's degree. And it's like, well, that's not a degree you can have in college. Why not? So give them a skill. Like, I, I think every kid in business should have video editing skills, audio production skills, and how to market like that. Marketing of doing brochures and messaging is not marketing anymore. Marketing is getting a message out and driving content. So I would do that. Like, I, I don't, you know, like I, I get a communications degree is great. Okay. But let's get them applicable skill sets that we can look at and say, you know, let, let's be honest. I mean, a kid comes in as a football player, basketball, soccer, baseball, golf. He's like, I want to go to med school. Awesome pathway. Here we have, I want to be a lawyer. Here's how we do it. I want to be a school teacher. I want to be a coach. Perfect. Here are the game plans. But I want to be a pro athlete. We're like, no, nah, uh, we can't say that. It's taboo. Yeah. It's taboo. Like, come on. Like, you should be able to look at it and say, hey, look, that's great, okay? Because I'm not going to pee in your cereal. How do you? How are we going to do this? How are we going to develop that? And what are the fallback skills you have? Yeah. Like my roommate in college was the age pick of the major league draft. He got a degree in finance because he knew he was going to be dealing with money. That was brilliant. Good idea. Yeah, well thought. Um, as we wrap up, one last question I'd like to, to kind of touch on. If I could give you a, a time machine to go jump into and visit 16-year-old Brett. Hmm. Um, back uh then from experiences and, and things you've learned in your journey uh and expertise what uh advice would you want to give yourself well first of all, i would say you know doing your junior year on junior varsity baseball is going to be the best thing you ever do so don't be upset and embarrassed by it um learn how to be learn how to compete in the biggest moments and and it's messy um you don't need approval or safety to be great you need to you need to have the wherewithal to push through all this um, that life is going to give you many opportunities. Um, get get as many invitations as you can, do as many dances as you can in that, and learn from as many people as you can because the learning of life comes from the relationships we build and the experiences we have, not what people tell you that it should be. <laughs>